Hey, hello again, everybody. John Porteous of the Lovells Township Historical Society here, and you're listening to the Backcast Podcast. Hey, we're back. Um, our hiatus was a little longer than expected, but uh, good fun was had by all, and uh, we're delighted to be back. Uh, this week, Richard and I are going to sit down with Steve Johnson. Uh, Steve uh, has long roots in this community. He's uh, done quite a bit for cold water conservation in the area, uh, has a great <laughs> level of historical knowledge uh, in the greater Levels area. His uh, relatives have been here since 1911. Uh, his uncle was actually one of the original signatories on the uh, Levels Township uh, Charter. So all that to say, fun episode. Uh, we'll be having uh, quite a few more podcasts to follow in the in the coming weeks. So check back often, and welcome back. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey again, everybody. John Porteous here with my co-host Richard Perry and our special guest Steve Johnson. We're um, we're broadcasting today from the banks of the North Branch. About a block and a half south of the museum at the uh, Fuller's North Branch Outing Club. So uh, we're, we're steeped in history and uh, great ambiance. And so a uh, good setting for our podcast today. Steve, welcome aboard. Well, thank you. Uh, glad to be here. Excellent. Excellent. Glad to be any place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's typical of the best thought of the morning. The, um, well, Steve... Uh, as per spec, I think probably what we'll do is just have you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, things people may not know, well, how you been, came up, how you started been, fishing. Been here an awful long time, ever since I was born. Well, that's... <laughs> that is a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Two plus weeks, yeah. Yeah, family moved to the Lovells area. Well, bought property here in 1904. Awesome. And uh, Louis Bill and uh, the Bills and the Smiths all got together and uh, corralled a square mile over on Big Creek. And uh, Built a place in 1911, which just was uh, torn down last year because it was either tearing down or it'll fall, it'll fall down. Or, or, no, or nobody yeah. had been using it's gonna it. Going to come for, down one way or another. Yeah. And, uh, That's pretty impressive. That was uh, the origins of our our family here. Uh, well, with your family stories, um, you know, family history has just been related to you obviously probably looking a lot different than it does today on the landscape side but yeah we could uh, probably see our cabin from uh, levels in those days there weren't any trees here at that time right and this this is not not steve's right right the um that had to be amazing mm-hmm. just to and I guess your your parents were front front and center to see all that growth and change. 
That was an interesting yeah. piece of property. I, you know, I've been over there with you and was done with Skip before you. Mm -hmm. And you know, to get back in there and there was, you know, you have what you have springs and old trucks with trees growing through them and just about anything. It's kind of like a yeah. Uh, there's a there's an old Model T back in there with a tree growing up through it. <laughs> I know where there's the wreck of an old Star truck. There were a couple of sawmills located on the property, so if you take a metal detector, you find all manner of things laying around on the ground. The old cabin that had a well, there was a spring right next, right, right down the hill from that, right? Yeah, it had uh, had a spring. Uh, so that's what had had to walk out to collect your water for the house. Yeah. Of course, they had uh, outdoor facilities. Right. <laughs> about two foot up in the spring. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, there's still uh, still an old Dodge sitting over there uh, that was used as a doodle bug at, back uh, in the 40s. Oh, God. 1914 Dodge. Oh, goodness. Still turns over, too. Nobody's put any gas in it to see if it'll run, but. Hmm. <laughs> That's pretty wild. You get on the crank and it, you can turn it over with the crank. Was. Was that just part of your youth? Was just exploring? Yeah, uh, I didn't come along until much later. Uh, my grandfather had built another cabin by that time. He built one in 1935, 34, 35, that time period. And I would spend my, as a kid, I'd spend my summers up here staying with grandpa and grandma. Uh, the only other person around was my sister, so uh, it was pretty. Uh, Did they do? Weren't your grandparents caretakers at Big Creek at one time? Uh, my father was. Your father was. Okay. His, uh, my stepmother. <coughs> um, uh, my grandfather uh, was pretty much the one that got me into fly fishing because he was a, a fly fisherman long before it was uh, popular. In vogue. <laughs> <laughs> Pre-trendy. Yeah. Trendsetter. <clears throat> yeah, I've been publishing uh, photographs on my Facebook page for, uh, I'm in the 370s now. I post one every about every other day. And I started with the earliest photos I had was at the North Branch around the turn of uh, in, around 1900 on up to I'm up in the up to 2000 right now. That's amazing. Well, we're <coughs> sitting here in the, in the uh, Douglas Hotel, North Branch Outing Club, but the Douglas Hotel, the people who've been here a long time. And your grandfather sold the Delco plants to Douglas. Yeah. They provided electricity here in the He's in the old, old days, right? Yeah, he, he did that. Uh, sold uh, the Delco units to most of the places around here that wanted electricity. And for our listeners, Steve, tell us what a Delco unit is. Uh, it's a DC generator. Okay. Uh, so it's your own power plant. Your own power plant, as long as you get some, uh, some uh, what, 
would be called gasoline back in those days. You could have uh, electric or electric lights in your house. So that was the Tesla plant in the DC. Yeah. yeah okay. uh, um, well, that was Edison. Edison was DC. Yeah, Tesla was AC. Aldrin. Aldrin. I always get that backwards. I don't know why. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that makes sense because Edison used yeah. to uh, supposedly he stayed here from time to time. Yeah, my grandfather worked in the woods. Uh, he worked uh, at the shingle mill, the shingle mill, for a while okay. as a younger person. And then uh, he was one of the two or three guys that would drive the wagons from uh, the Douglas house out to the various camps around here. So we got to spend quality time with uh, the likes of Henry Ford and, and uh, some of the other uh, big names that had camps luminaries on the river. Of the day. Yeah, luminaries of the day. That's great. Well, I mean, to Richard's point, the, the building that we're in, for folks that may not be aware of it, is just, as this whole area is, just steeped in crazy history. Um, for you know, a little speck on the map, there's some very interesting people that found their way here and left an imprint in some ways. Well, the part of the hotel we're in now is back to 1897, and then of course the new part goes back to 1916. So uh, it's incredible. There is a lot of footprints around here. Mm -hmm. <coughs> well, well, what was the, what was the experience like to? To take a wagon from the hotel out to the camp, what, a couple of miles, provisioning? Well, for, from here to uh, Dam 4 okay. is a little over five miles, yep. and it wasn't a quick trip. Not on paved levels <laughs> road. No. <laughs> so, uh, it was... Uh, I never experienced it, but well, no respect, but yeah. I just—it's it, always, to me at least, fun to hear mm -hmm. these type of generational. You know, when you've been been around as long as you have mm -hmm. here in this area, and your family, it's just—it's kind of neat to hear. Yeah, there there were two guys that drove the wagons. The other one was Clarence Stillwagon. And uh, just recently, I was talking to a friend of mine from downstate, and I happened to mention Clarence. And he looks at me, he says, that's my great uncle. No way. <laughs> no way. So uh, the, the world uh, has a tendency to get small at times. Didn't he, did he have a place up north of where we're at? Still wagons? Yeah. No, they had a place First. over near old, the old Cade store. Oh, okay. Oh, uh, down by uh, Bill Cornicky's place. Okay. Okay, that's another name that you'll hear pop up on the podcast every once in a while. Mm -hmm. The um, he's pretty big tie flyer or fly tire, wasn't he? Yeah, he was okay. <laughs> Lo locally, yeah, yeah some, locally. Had some unique patterns. Yeah. 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 It it just some of the flies that I've seen over in the museum are. Um, it, he, I guess he was quite the character as yeah, well. Bill, Bill was uh, uh, one of the ornerier people you'll ever run into. <laughs> Lovingly so. 
<laughs> endearingly so. Yeah, I'll say that now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, he was uh, he was my grandfather's fishing buddy. Okay. Yeah, they fished uh, Big Creek together. They would uh, walk through uh, Big Creek Swamp, which was not easy today. You can practically drive to where they used to fish now, but it was it was close to three quarters of a mile walk through uh, Cedar Swamp to get to the creek back in those days. Mm-hmm. There's still a fair amount of Cedar Swamp over there, isn't there? Uh, quite a bit. That's what I thought. <laughs> quite a bit. Not many people see the uh, the interior over there. <laughs> the interior. <laughs> the hidden kingdom. Nice. Well, what, um, I don't know, what's your, your earliest memory of your own fly My own fly fishing? Uh, I was five years old. I was standing on the dock in front of my grandfather's place catching a brook trout on a fly rod. All right. fly. And I have a picture to prove it. There you go. <laughs> in my uh, cowboy hat. So uh, you you were a stylish angler. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was uh, in between playing cowboys and Indians. I did a little trout fishing. It's perfect. Perfect. And started on dry flies. Yeah. You know, right? uh, yeah. I, that, there was nothing else. My grandfather would not allow us to use anything else except dry flies, uh, except for the occasional worm. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Was that more dinner-oriented? or uh, That was definitely dinner-oriented. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, so background-wise, um, you, you, I mean, it seems to me, you're, you're for folks that don't know, I think you're a pretty well-traveled gentleman. You've mm-hmm. had some pretty awesome experiences in your life, but um, maybe collegiately you were up north. Yeah, uh, I spent my summers here until my grandfather had a stroke, and then uh, spent my summers down in the Saginaw area, where my mother and dad were running a business uh, distributing Valvoline oil over the state. Okay. But I still made my way back here on weekends and uh, did some fishing. Well, your mother, you told some... She was what? She was the only woman they'd allow in deer camp. Yeah. Was that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She was uh, a excellent caster, fly caster. She would uh, fished only dry flies, um, and uh, she she did grow up here. And she went to the uh, Lone Pine School. Hmm. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's incredible. Uh, but for, uh, for for some time, she finished her high school career in uh, Saginaw uh, at Arthur Hill High School. Does she, she handle a shotgun okay? Yes. She could <laughs> certainly outshoot me. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, with uh, during deer camp, we used to have a big bunch of people come in to get deer camp. And along toward the end of the season, there'd always be a few guys that didn't have their deer yet. And she would volunteer to go out and get them a deer, and usually did. (laughs) (laughs) That's wild. That had to be a little bit humbling for some of the guys. 
Good on her. Good on her. So, yeah. Well, so so when you, you so you finished your high school in Saginaw as well. I did. Okay. I finished at Arthur Hill. And then, and then up north uh, to Tech. Yeah, I took off for Michigan Tech and or uh, arrived up there, wondering what I was going to do. Finally, decided on chemistry. had everybody scratching their head because I wasn't uh, hadn't really done a lot done well in chemistry in high school <laughs> <laughs> a dark horse uh, mm -hmm. major there yeah okay so so, so what happened what you, you you graduated with I was uh, I played a little hockey Played uh, broom ball, which is an uh, interesting hockey variation. Okay. And for our listeners, that is like what? Well, you, instead of hockey sticks, you get brooms. You got galoshes instead of skates, and, but you still got the ice. And uh, I, uh, I was drafted into the uh, faculty team because oh. I. I was that was a walk on up there playing hockey okay. on the team. Sounds like a hybrid hockey curling type thing. It, it pretty much uh, <laughs> used used a I think it was a volleyball or something. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you get a bunch of guys clattering around on ice with brooms and volleyballs. It's kind of an entertaining sight. Nice. Sounds like a bone doctor's uh, delight. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Didn't make the didn't make the hockey team. They had to beat out some some guy named Tony Esposito. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he wasn't very good, was he? Nah. He's, yeah. Obviously, he, politics. Yeah. Yeah. He, did you did you coach ever lament was, that decision or anything? No. But, <laughs> but I'll tell you, the coach. John McInnes is still one of the finest men I've ever met. Nice. Uh, real, a real decent individual and a great coach, too. Well, and, and again, for our listeners that may not be aware, that's a pretty storied program up there, isn't it? It is. Uh, I, you know, yeah. kidding aside about uh, Esposito, but I mean, there's... Well, in his senior year, he was first team All-American, and his back, our backup goalie, was second team All-American, and had better goals against average. <laughs> <laughs> you and Eberle ever talk about that? Yeah. <laughs> Trade goalie stories. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I played on an intramural team for four years up there. And we had two guys turn pro from yeah. the intramural team. I would, I would think an intramural team there would be like, you know, I, competing with most teams. Yeah, the real, real high, high talent, high on the talent end. Yeah. Because ah. Canadians had come there and maybe have only a couple of years of eligibility left. They hung around, got their degrees, and went back to Canada. Okay. I was the only American on the team. Indeed. 
Wow. On the intramural team. Right. But well, there were a couple of guys from the American American Sioux that were on the <laughs> on the varsity. Nice. Well, did you did you were you able to fish at all when when you were yeah, going to school? I took advantage of hunting and fishing while I was up there. Uh, as I was graduating, I took a little bit of extra time to graduate. Uh, Terry Warrington came on as a professor in chemistry. So I met him briefly um, while, while he was first there. Uh, I went down to the Ann Arbor area to find a job, get a job. And a friend of mine eventually ended up at Michigan Tech for his master's degree. And he ran, hooked up with Terry and it was about the time that the UP chapter of Trout Unlimited was formed. Of course, being from Saginaw, I'd been a not a long-time member, but I had been a member of Trout Unlimited. New New York woman. I was uh, going to say this. <laughs> uh, he spent a lot of time here in Lovells. Yep. Uh, so uh, they got the UP chapter up and running up there. Terry happened to be the uh, fearless leader, Terry Warrington. Okay. And it was a heck of a long drive down here to attend MITU meetings. So I, at that point, went to those meetings uh, to uh, stand in for the UP chapter. Um, so uh, and that got them really really got them on the map as far as a, a chapter. Poor thing. Um, and as a result I got to know Terry Warrington a little better and eventually he would come down and stay at my place and fish on you know, take a long weekend away from the uh, away from the students, and uh, uh, you, we'd throw spinners on the on the creek. He was an go. excellent spinner fisherman. Hmm. Would did he had he developed his taste for microscopic flies by then? No. Okay. No. Was that a later on? That that was something uh, uh, he experimented with everything. fished together out west for uh, steelhead swinging flies. We fished Atlantic salmon uh, in, in the uh, maritime provinces in, in Canada. Uh, uh, but he did find, he found out that trout liked these little flies. He's always trying to f solve why there were these pods of fish that were rising and he couldn't see what what they were taking. And uh, he finally found some small hooks, tied some small flies. He's a prolific uh, fly tire and uh, got into fishing with small flies. That's <laughs> Terry's such a trip. Mm -hmm. He's a good man and again for our listeners 
I, I would imagine a lot of you uh, know, but Terry passed last year and um, sorely missed. Um, if you're around Gates, he was definitely a fixture. Yeah, he used to sit on the bench and watch the fish. <laughs> he stared down. <laughs> it, was like a, he, it was almost like he mm -hmm. was playing a, you know, a, some crazy double dare game with him. Yeah. It, was, it was incredible. He was very, no. seemingly to me, uh, patient in that regard. I'm <clears throat> certainly not without his eccentricities, but... Uh, he, he he did master that that genre. <laughs> yeah. So, with that said, and you being pretty close, you want to share any special memories or anything? Or oh gosh, you guys have spent some time together. <laughs> well, yeah, we fished the Rifle River together uh, for steelhead. Um, that was always always a hoot. Um, love, I loved fishing that river, and he did too because it was nymph fishing without weight, using a light rod, because you didn't need to you didn't need to bottom bounce with stuff. Okay, it was so shallow. Mm. And it was just just a lot of just a lot of fun. So you could almost sight fish it. Uh, exactly. It's exactly what you did. You spotted yeah, the yeah. fish and then figured out how to stalk them. Yeah, let the fly down there and all of a sudden the white comes up and boom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> all right. That is fun. Um, yeah, we fished, fished together out west with uh, Terry Nab, another, this is uh, the other Terry that was at Michigan Tech. Uh, who is probably an equal uh, to uh, Terry Warrington on intensity of fishing. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a pretty tall bar. Yeah. <laughs> How'd that work out with uh, fishing with two super intense guys? That was fine. I, I used to be intense too, but I've, oh, okay. I've, I've mellowed over the <laughs> years. <laughs> Steve's about as kicked back as it gets, folks. <laughs> a, always a smile and always a good story. The, um, well, so on the TU side of things, um, I guess I've got a few questions there. Uh, maybe maybe talk about your you knew Art pretty well, right? Yep. And yep. maybe share some of your thoughts that way. I mean, it, oh, we well, love it when everybody's got an art story. Yeah, Art would, Art formed, uh, it, he found a place to go Atlantic salmon fishing. It was a river that had only opened a few years earlier uh, called the George River. And he put together a group of uh, people to go Atlantic salmon fishing. Don't quite remember how I got into that group, but I did. And it's forever since been known as the Voyagers. All right. <laughs> uh, and 
some uh, some of some of the uh, TU leaders of the day were were on on that in that group. Uh, a lot of them passed away now. Um, but we went up there, and uh, this is my first Atlantic salmon fish fishing experience, and it stuck. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, and uh, I went up there with uh, Terry Nab, uh, and he was number one rod in the camp that year. It was his first experience. Oh wow. I was, uh, we were, there were 12 people in camp, I was number 12. <laughs> but it took me, a, in a, a, a river full of fish, it took me four days to figure out what I was doing. I finally caught one and landed one. I think I ended up with six or eight in a week we were there. There you go. Uh, but, uh, Ever since I've I've been uh, trying to trying to keep up with those two guys <laughs> on trips. Well, if I if I've heard the story correct, Art was a little bit anal in terms of trip preparation. Yeah. Yes. Efficacious. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he gave everyone a list of things to take on the trip. Um, down to a box of uh, some uh, matches, stick matches for mm -hmm. lighting fires. Uh, uh, he was uh, the itinerary was planned out to the exact tick of the clock. <laughs> <laughs> so those lists we have over in the uh, museum where he's doing the preparatives, you know, ice block, ice crushed ice. Cube dice, ball mm -hmm. uh, ice, and yeah, socks. You know, did, did he give each one of you guys that list? That list for your prep came with uh, in one of the several prep packages that we got. <laughs> It'd be in stages. You know, two months out, four weeks out, two weeks out, and the go date. <laughs> A build of excitement, a little. Mm -hmm. But that was kind of like a Boy Scout checklist uh, cubed, wasn't it? It was just the intricacies that. Yeah, things that he found he had uh, needed in the past. There you go. There you go. Perfect. Perfect. Well, relative to your experiences with TU and and your conservation. Efforts. I mean, you're you're pretty passionate that way. You're. Yeah, I think uh, for a long time I was a member of, the, of several chapters. Whether it was the Jackson chapter, which is now defunct, uh, uh, Ann Arbor chapter. Uh, I was early on before it was called the Marchand chapter. <laughs> I was part of that. Uh, but I wasn't active. I was a member, I supported the things they did, but I, I wasn't feet on the, on the ground okay. kind of guy. And uh, 
my intense activity started after I had retired and moved up here. Um, joined up with the uh, Mason Griffith chapter. Um, and uh, found out what they were doing. Joined in on a few a few projects in the summer. Uh, there were discussions about doing work on the upstream portion of the west branch of Big Creek, but nobody had ever done anything. Um, I'm not going to take credit for getting it going, but I was there when it got going. Right on. Uh, Steve Sendick had been trapping up there to knock the beaver population down. Okay. Uh, but there wasn't any real, there was an idea that something was going to happen up there, but it hadn't happened yet. Uh, so uh, I, I took a hike up in there and found a whole bunch of beaver dams plugging the river. So, okay, let's do that. Let's take those beaver dams out now that the beaver population is down. So we yanked those out. There were from where we started at Spectacle Creek down to the power where the power line crosses, which is about a mile and a half of stream, there were 22 beaver dams that were taken out. Oh. Wow. Uh, and of course, they'd all silted in, so the river was really in bad condition up there. Well, this is, I want to, I want you to keep going on that, but it, mm -hmm. let's, for listeners that may not understand, you know, a lot of people, oh, beavers are so cute and they're swimming around and that it, but I like they're, the toothpaste. They're, yeah, they're hellishly destructive, and maybe you can tell folks why and how. Well, on a on a cold water stream, they are destructive. On a warm water stream, they're fine. Let them let them go. Mm -hmm. But on a cold water stream, they they tend to uh, block the uh, block the stream up, form ponds, which is what they're trying to do, so that they can have uh, uh, easy winter movement to get to their feed piles. Um, but in the process of building those ponds, they silt in. The silt is usually black so it absorbs a lot of the thermal energy from the sun and warms the water. Warms the water. Uh, that's why beaver ponds are productive for maybe a couple of years and then after that they go sterile. They just can't support any trout life. Well, yeah, they're too warm. They'll, right. they'll support warm water species like bass right. and the like. But, uh, not uh, not necessarily trout. There might be one or two trout in there, but no. it's, it's not their favorite spot. Right. So have a, we? Uh, I like to see a uh, a cold water stream stay flowing. There you go. Because of that. There you go. So it, well, it, again, promoting 
lower water temperatures and less uh, mm -hmm. residual buildup. Right. Well, there were some apocryphal stories on the upper end of uh, Big Creek of how good the brook trout fishing was, how good the spawning was up there for brook trout, and yet uh, at the time we started this, there was there were virtually no trout in that area. One or two, not many. Uh, once we opened that up, put in a few structures, within a year we had gravel, and within two years we had spawning trout up there. Awesome. And now, if you want to catch a decent sized brook trout, I'd suggest that that's a fine place to go. <laughs> <laughs> but you'll have to walk. We're not telling you how to get there. Yeah, yeah. we're not going to we're not going to give directions and it's a hellishly long walk so you probably won't enjoy it. Well, it's <laughs> it's not accessible other than by foot. All right. On the uh, on the northern part portion of it. Yeah, this isn't a slide your car jump out and no. cast and be <laughs> rewarded. This is uh, this is a lot of work and <laughs> it's, it's yeah. worth it though. Oh yeah. So you did uh, a lot of river mapping too, right? Yep. And you, I mean, you got into the, the yeah. whole software thing, and I ran into Jerry Lake one fine day on on the North Branch, and he was out there with his uh, tripods and, and and boat and <laughs> and floats and long lengths of uh, rope. And I politely asked him, "What in the Sam Hill are you doing?" <laughs> <laughs> He says, I'm mapping the river. Oh, well, that's cool. Why, what are you doing that for? You know, right, so we can record uh, exposed gravel, so we can locate uh, springs, uh, what the vegetation is, all that is going into his maps. He says, well, that's kind of neat. Can I see these maps? Yeah, and he breaks out a sheaf of uh, hand-drawn maps. And uh, I thought to myself, there's got to be a better way to do this. Uh, so we talked about it a while, and I said, let me see if I can find a software program that'll uh, geo-reference those maps, because you got a lot of uh, latitude, longitude data points in them. Mm -hmm. uh, so I found a uh, talk to a cartographer friend of mine. He says, yeah, the thing you want is such and such software. So I went out and bought a copy. Oh, cool. About, it was about three, four hundred bucks. And uh, scanned uh, the maps, Jerry's maps, told, told her what the reference points are, and located them on the scanned document. You twisted it and bent it and the map and came out with a something that really looked like it fit the river. Awesome. <laughs> and it did. So the early work was just, just doing that. And uh, Jerry uh, was out in the river doing some doing the measurements using uh, lengths of rope, 100 foot lengths of rope, which are really hard to handle. Yeah. Uh, and he, uh, he had a, a handheld GPS, and I says, 
we can use that GPS to take a lot of these measurements that you're making. So we set about set about figuring out how to do that and actually started mapping the river quite quite a bit faster with with uh, perhaps the, more precisely yeah, the different features <laughs> yeah. that uh, we're looking at. Uh, Jerry did a heck of a good job on on the hand drawn maps, uh, but I thought there was a you know next uh, level next next level, and we took that step and uh, put together the, the very detailed map from uh, the uh, sheep ranch down to Twin Bridges, and that was the beginning of. Uh, the uh, cartography efforts and with respect to the North Branch. Uh, then just, I found just roughly when was that, Steve? When did you get involved with it? 2010. Okay. Okay. The um, so since then you've been able to have that bear fruit? Well, by combining other data collection and bringing it all together in a visual, I like to think of it as a digital relational database. Okay. Because we, we also have, uh, Jerry had started uh, red surveys. Right. Marking reds. Mm -hmm. Marking the position of reds and the size, the depth of water. Uh, I think we could have several other parameters in there that would uh, proximity to cover. Uh, proximity to cover. I would like. I would like to see water velocity. I'd like to see dissolved oxygen associated with it. I want to know why the fish build the reds where they do. Nobody seems to know. <laughs> because I've seen perfectly good areas with not a rated site and other areas you can hardly step in the water without stepping on a red. Sometimes they're like wren nests. They just show up in the most bizarre places. It's like, mm -hmm. I wonder what they were thinking of that. <laughs> you know, and, and yeah, and... Uh, maybe they weren't. So, <laughs> just reacting. So, so now I took... Jerry started much earlier than... Mm -hmm. 2010. I took all of his previous data, put those into the, the locations into the map, uh, and then added the uh, the features associated with each data point, which was uh, length, width, depth, uh, cover. Those were the five that, or the four, yeah, four that, that we were interested in. So we have that data from roughly 2006 to present date. So who has access to that? How's it being used? I mean, well, it's something you guys are looking at. Uh, yeah, uh, when we put in covers, new covers, we look for locations where there are reds so that we can put cover close to where the fish should be some like, like, to be, like to be so that they have cover they're very exposed when they're on the red. 
uh, predators. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're, what we wanted to do was put cover close to where they normally had reds so there would be cover that they could move into. Well, like when Sendak does his river improvement or stream improvement projects, he would you'd share that with him and you would use them for that? Yep. Yep. Which, fact, incidentally, Steve will be our next uh, podcast guy. Yeah. <laughs> We've got, got him coming up the here. The other Steve. Pretty yeah, close sorry, future. Go ahead. The other Steve. Yeah. Um, so, did conversely, though, Steve, do, like you were suggesting, it's like this would be a perfectly good place for a red, but there weren't any. To, would you install habitat in a place like that and then see if the reds follow? Uh, we have done that. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Kind of a dice roll? Mm-hmm. But if you get them close to an area that previously has a number, a good number of reds, they're usually occupied so you um, can when red, uh, you spawning can season. Lead a, tref, lead a trout to gravel, but you can't make them spawn. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, and, you know, honestly, that's probably another good thing because maybe not everybody that's listening uh, fully understands what a trout rat is. Um, you want to give the quick nickel tour on that? Well, it's uh, the place where uh, the female trout selects to lay her eggs. Um, the, uh, she'll tip up on her side and fan the gravel with her tail to make a pocket. That gravel well up, go a little bit downstream and form a mound. Uh, and in, the, in this process, she'll release the eggs and they'll be buried in the gravel while the males are scurrying about around her. Uh, the, uh, the eggs are aerated in that gravel. Mm-hmm because it's you a little water. bit up into the into the current um, so that uh, makes so that they uh, uh, hatch better in a well oxygenated environment and to to that and visually if, if somebody's you know, maybe not an angler or just maybe they enjoy kayaking or just other leisure things on the river. If you're in the river, you're visually going to be able to see that these reds, is that correct? Sometimes. Okay. Uh, in, in a river like the North Branch that has light colored substrate, you're probably going to be able to see them. In a river like the South Branch that has all black <laughs> stones in it, Probably not. You'll fall in the hole before you before you realize it's there. And, you, and, and so you, you really do have to be mindful. And, and we're talking about specific times of the year. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the fall uh, for the yeah. browns and the brookies. And browns and brooks are in the fall. And we do have a population of rainbows. So you will see the reds in the spring. There you go. And, and again, just... You want to give it a wide berth. You don't want to. Mm-hmm. When, when the fish are on the reds, it's a good good time to be out having a hike or uh, maybe getting ready for deer season or 
get your yeah, grouse gun uh, out or whatever. Yeah, just just use a little care when you're in the river. Don't don't walk through the don't walk through the reds. Uh, uh, don't cast to a fish on a red. <laughs> for risk for yeah. risk for yeah. risk of people do do avoid that. It yeah. was uh, it was popular to do for a lot of years, oh, yeah. but. Uh, Where you have a uh, sustaining population, most of the rivers—I know the rifle. There was no no planting in the rifle. Those are all wild fish. Uh, people kind of want to be careful with with wild fish. I I only think there are two. They might plant some rainbows in the lower end of the rifle, but. Uh, I think that's primarily a wild fishery, and the uh, little manistee is the other wild fishery in PM. Might be just the PM. Little manistee gets a gets some yeah. benefit of planting. Well, I didn't mean to take you off stride with the the others, but it, I always like you know if we can explain a little something mm -hmm. in deeper context to uh, the listening audience. I always enjoy that. But um, so the bottom line is there's a hell of a lot of data that's passed through your hands. <laughs> yeah, as a matter of fact, I have two projects ongoing with uh, the DNR. One, Tim Slowinski has got a project on the Pigeon River where we're doing red mapping. Okay. And uh, the other one was Neil Godby on the sturgeon and a tributary of the sturgeon. Do you? No, Lower Peninsula, over really? by, over by uh, Wolverine. Yeah, it, it flows. Vanderbilt. It flows through Wolverine, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just driving by it, it looks like a really fishy river. Um, yeah, it's a good river to get swept away in. It looks a little <laughs> brisk. <laughs> swept away. Yeah, well, might avoid that then. Yeah. So, I guess we're we're kind of coming around to where we're at today, and, mm -hmm. and you're still really active, as you pointed out with these two projects, but you've got some other stuff going too, don't you? Yeah, with the uh, Mason Griffith uh, Founders Chapter, and at least I thought you did. Maybe not. Uh, about the only thing I'm doing these days is uh, the uh, newsletter. Okay. Okay. It's not insignificant. <laughs> yeah, I've uh, taken to a, much like this an interview method to. Uh, there you go. Collect my stories. There you go. There's uh, nothing wrong with that. It seems like people don't like to write <laughs> anymore. <laughs> it's. Uh, <coughs> yeah. Ain't nothing. Yeah. <laughs> it's. I enjoy. I, I do enjoy reading others' writing, though. Mm -hmm. It's. Uh, I don't like work. It's like. <laughs> good thing for somebody to do someplace. Exactly. Yeah, which reminds me, I've got to start collecting. Uh, the newsletter. Yeah, it's going to be about that time. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Were you still in the anglers? You're still with them? 
still own the anglers. They're the ones that are sponsoring the uh, uh, red surveys and a lot of the mapping done on the uh, north branch. Well, as long as we're talking about organizations, you're still, in, you know, you and I are both still in the. Yeah. And John, mm -hmm. vice president of Lovell's Township Historical Society and the Trout Museum. Yeah. So, uh, well, and he's uh, the Sobel North Branch Area Foundation. Mm -hmm. I know that you're active there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not, not lately, but I'll be getting back into it pretty soon. Uh, your definition of not active <laughs> may differ from most. Yeah, I think you're still a, a man of influence. So uh, I think it's great that you're you're doing all this stuff for the river. Um, I guess as we're we're kind of coming to the tail out here, what uh, for the young anglers amongst us or the old or all. Um, messages of encouragement or well, best practices to carry forward as we go into this uh, new age of fishing? Just for the uh, guys just getting into volunteering, take a look at what's going on, figure something out you can do and do it. It, it, it really is pretty easy. Yeah. It, Nobody's going to object if you do something. I, 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 it's a rare day when a volunteer is turned around. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Pretty good. Steve, thank you so much. Thanks for all you do for the river systems and for your, your fellow humans in the area. Much appreciated. Well, I enjoy what I'm doing. Richard? All right, good job. Thank you again and uh, appreciate your support and friendship. Absolutely. All right, gang, we're going to call that a wrap. We'll um, be back sooner than later now that we're done with our summer hiatus that went into overtime. Uh, I think we're going to be a little more prolific with our uh, podcast distribution. So stay tuned for more. The availability of victims. All right, another episode in the books. The uh, hope you enjoyed that one. We're going to be back uh, sooner than later with uh, more exciting podcast interviews. And uh, in the meantime, we hope you have a safe and enjoyable Labor Day weekend. And uh, as they always say at the end of the podcast, mind your backcast. Just like children sleep.